the message today is entitled The One True Gospel. The One True Gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that as you bring forth this message from the Apostle Paul, that you will quicken our hearts and open for us vistas of understanding where we have not been able to grasp or understand the graciousness and the love and the mercy that you have for each of us. Lord, bring this word deep into our hearts that we could utterly renounce the things of this world, the flesh, the world, the devil, that we could walk in you, Jesus, and be found in you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. I begin today a series of messages from the book of Galatians. We could spend months in this book. We probably won't, but we may need to. Of course, Galatia is a province or was a province of the Roman Empire. Caesar had taken it over completely by force, by means of arms, weapons, These were a mixture of many different peoples, including the Greeks. It was a very Hellenistic area. The Apostle Paul was the one who went there and preached first to the Gentiles, but also to the Jewish people, and he raised up a church in Galatia. We know he visited this church on at least two occasions. But he was very upset because of reports that he was receiving regarding the church at Galatia. And so the message in the book of Galatians is the corrective message to the theology that was being perverted. If we're honest with ourselves, all of us, as we go through our daily activities, have aroused passions of our heart that wage war against the gospel of Jesus. As one testimony shared today from our sister, the passions of her heart were ready to explode, and she could have found many justifications for the anger that would have flowed from her heart. She could have painted the picture in such a way that she would have looked entirely justified. And no doubt, she would have been justified. But instead of rage and anger flowing from her heart, the Lord said, stop, don't go there. And she was faced then with a choice. Would she obey the theology of Scripture? You know what theology means. It's not the study of God. We cannot put God in the test tube and study him. Theology means we have a revelation of God. We know what we ought to do, and we begin to practice it. And when we mess up, we go back and look at it again. That's true theology. And it worked for my sister this week. Some of you, it perhaps didn't work quite as well, and you may have shared a bit of your mind with somebody, and you needed to keep all you had, but you spread it around. The passions come into our heart, self-justification, Anger, our traditions, all of these come in and wage war against what we find in Christ Jesus. 
So Paul is now going to bring a very corrective message to the people at Galatia, one that has brought wonderful transformation to my heart. He begins his message identifying who he is, Paul, an apostle. You understand what an apostle is? It's a messenger. That's all it means. It doesn't mean you're able to work miracles. It doesn't mean any of the things we assign to it. The word originally simply meant messenger, bringing a message from the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, taking that message to the person with regard to that message, that verdict concerning their place or their condition. An apostle brings to us the verdict of not guilty in Jesus Christ. With that judgment of not guilty comes signs and wonders. That's why it says that apostles bring signs and wonders because God confirms the word of not guilty that he speaks through them. Or, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, he brings judgment. Whatever the verdict of heaven is regarding your life and your heart, the apostle will bring it. Not sent from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead to the churches in Galatia. Now the first word of this apostolic message to our hearts, I want you to hear, grace and peace to you. I want you all to get this, so don't be distracted, please. I want you to hear this. If you miss this opening salvo of the gospel, you will not understand the rest of the book of Galatians. Grace, charis in the Greek, literally means the unwarranted favor of God. It means the influence of God on your heart for the gospel. Okay, so he's saying at his very beginning, if you don't understand this, you're going to miss. What he's going to say to you must be accompanied by the influence of God in your spirit. Without that, you will not understand what's going to be said. The second thing he says, and peace to you. This is not shalom. This in the Greek literally means harmony and prosperity. Harmony and prosperity. So Paul is saying to us, look, I want you to recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ comes first of all with a powerful divine influence that makes itself felt in your life. None of us of our own accord would turn to the gospel of Jesus. We would be consumed in our own darkness. But in his kindness, he sends his active, not passive, influence of his Holy Spirit to begin to move in our heart and to call us. There's not one of you in this house today who is not here because the Holy Spirit did not call you. You are here because he did call you. So the first step in understanding the book of Galatians is to know that God is influencing your heart. And you can respond with all manner of stubbornness, 
And he'll explain later in the book what will happen if you respond to his kindness with with stubbornness. And then he says, and it is God's desire that you be prosperous financially. It is not God who brings poverty to his people. It is God who brings prosperity to his people. So first he's saying, I want you to know that you are being won by the Holy Spirit. You are being influenced by outward forces that are coming to play in your life. You may be utterly unconscious of them, but the Holy Spirit is after you. All right? And the Holy Spirit is after you in order to teach you the good news so that you can live in harmony without conflict and so that you can be prosperous. God did not ask us to follow Jesus Christ so he could torment us. He asked us to follow Jesus so that he could bless us with his presence and he could prosper us. Money is not sin. It's what we do with money that is sinful. Prosperity is not wrong. It's what we do with that prosperity, whether it reflects a selfishness of heart or whether it reflects a concern for the kingdom of heaven. So Paul opens by saying grace and prosperity and harmony. No more fighting. You know that if you engage in fighting, in anger, in bitterness, you are walking in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have a fight with your wife, you are in opposition to the gospel of Jesus. If you have a fight at work, you are operating in opposition to the gospel of Jesus. That's the opening salvo of this book. I know people who say, it's too peaceful here. I think I'd better stir up something. Because they're more comfortable in a fight and in drama than they are in peace. They would be most uncomfortable in heaven. Now he goes on. This is coming from God our Father. Grace and harmony and prosperity are coming to you from God our Father. Now, this means so much to these people because they are in a war-torn country. They have all experienced the trauma of the Roman legions putting down their fellow men and maybe even themselves. The expectation is that they live in constant danger physically and emotionally. We don't know that in America. Most of us in America reside in a place of peace, and so we don't treasure peace the way God wants us to treasure it. I wake up every morning, and you know what I say? Lord Jesus, thank you for another peaceful day where I can proclaim the gospel, where I don't have to run. I don't have a court case I have to deal with. I don't have charges against me by the government because I'm proclaiming the gospel. I believe this is a time of peace before a time of great upheaval in our nation. And many already are suffering in the upheaval of the injustice of our culture and our day. I praise God every day I have a peaceful day. This is coming from God, the Father, who raised him from the dead to who raised Jesus from the dead, and all the brothers with me. 
He's saying this position is what all of us in the church have taken. This is the common position of the body of Christ. He's saying this Jesus who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. And that word rescue in the Greek, we're going to look at a number of the words in the Greek. This word rescue us is a verb. You know, a verb is an action. An adjective is a description. A verb is action. This word is a verb, and it means to pluck out. You go for a dog with ticks. You have tweezers, and you pluck them out, right? You pluck out what you don't want. You draw out. And another specific meaning is to root out. In other words, you have to go deep to dig this thing out. Saying that Jesus came, he gave himself for our sins to rescue us, to pluck us up out of the present evil age. Now, I looked up the word evil and discovered that it's the same word that is used for evil in the Lord's Prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. You find it in Matthew, the sixth chapter, verse 9 forward. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Evil there means toil, painful labor, wickedness. In other words, painful toil is associated in Scripture with wickedness. You remember in Genesis, painful toil came into their lives with the earth being cursed because of their sin. Let's be very clear. It is sin that brings painful toil. It is not Jesus. Now, if you come back with me, it's saying to rescue us, that is to pluck us out of the present evil age, the age of toil and pain, the age of of laborious worry, hardships, danger. That's what we are plucked up out of, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And now he begins his rebuke. I am astonished, verse 6, this is Galatians 1, verse 6, I am astonished, I am amazed, I am confounded that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The word deserting literally means to change sides, to transfer. So the passions arise in our hearts, bitterness rises in our spirit, and we say, I'm not going to go there anymore. I'm not going to serve Jesus. It's useless. It's hopeless. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to live my own life. 
I'll set my own standards. And we go back to Eve, who stood at that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said, you know what, God's withholding from me something very precious to me, and that is the right to make my own decisions about what is right and what is wrong. So now we have a whole culture where every person says, hey, you can think whatever you want, but I'm going to decide what I want and what's right for me. And don't tell somebody what's, who's decided what's right for them that what they've decided is wrong. They'll become very angry because we all think we have the right to determine and judge for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. And we have our traditions. You know, Christmas is coming. Some of us were raised to think that Christmas was everything. I mean, I would usually start saving money in January to pay for Christmas. And if I didn't have at least $2,000 put away, as a young, newly married man, I knew we weren't going to have the Christmas for my family that I wanted. So don't tell me that Christmas is a pagan holiday. Don't tell me that Christmas is not Christian. You know what Christmas means? It's Christ Mass. Don't tell me that Christmas is about a Mass. And I was very rebellious. There is a spirit of Christmas that fills your heart, that draws you to emotional feelings. And the day after Christmas, when it all leaves and dissipates like a mist, you think, what was that all about? And after Christmas, I used to look, I'd clear out a whole drawer. I had two drawers when I was a kid. Everything I owned had to fit in those two drawers. So, I mean, my brothers and I and my family shared a 900-square-foot house, tiny little house with an outhouse. My dad put the running water in. We lived in this little house and had a little dresser, and I had two drawers. Well, I always knew I was going to get a wonderful Christmas. So I would clean out one drawer. I'd stuff everything into the other drawer, or I'd throw it away. So I had one drawer clear and ready for Christmas. And then Christmas would come, and and all the wonderful songs and the music. And when Christmas would come, and the next day, I would look in my drawer at the gifts, and they'd be one little goat herd of gifts over in one little corner of my... That's all my parents could afford. We were poor. And I'd say, is that all Christmas was about? I didn't understand that Christmas is not about getting, it's about giving. I thought it was about getting. Now you know what, when Christmas comes, I have so much fun. I don't clear out any drawers. Instead, I choose non-Christians, usually Muslims. And I pour out my heart and I give gifts to people who aren't going to give me anything. And I say, this is in the name of Jesus. I love it. So do I celebrate Christmas? No. It is a pagan holiday. But Jesus was born. He just wasn't born on December 25. So instead of railing against Christmas, the Holy Spirit has told me, use Christmas when pagan hearts are the softest. And open your heart and just give to them. And give to them so much that they're embarrassed. 
and I have such a good time. And most of the gifts I give anonymously. So when I'm around them, they're talking to friends. They're, they're saying, the strangest thing happened. And they talk about what happened. They said, I, I don't know who gave it. Of course, I keep a straight face. I don't want them to know that I did it. You know, when you begin to look at the passions of the human heart that become defensive and hard, and I'm right, and you're wrong, and you've got to do it my way, or it's the highway. I've been so right so many times. I've been wrong. And my rightness has caused division and separation among those that I love. I'm still going to stand on righteousness. I'm not going to turn aside from morality. But love has to lead the way. And compassion has to lead the way. Not hard-edged, angry self-righteousness. So you come into this opening in the first chapter, and he's saying, I want peace and prosperity for you. I want the grace of God to be in your life. God wants to take you out of this evil age. He wants to rescue you. He's not against you. He's for you. He has something better for you. And Paul's shaking his head and saying, can I put it bluntly? He's saying, you idiots, what's wrong with you? Why would you turn aside from the richness of God's love to go live your own way and have your own life? Why would you do that? You're, you're cutting yourself off. He says, I'm astonished at you. You're going to a different gospel, and it's no gospel at all. In other words, the way of this world, the way of legalism, the way of self-righteousness is not a gospel of good news. It's a gospel of judgment, hard-edged, bitterness, anger. He's saying, don't go there. Confusion. I hear people say to me, Pastor, I'm so confused. Well, when confusion comes into your heart, know that it's from the devil. God never brings confusion to our hearts. He brings absolute clarity in the way of love and peace and joy in the Spirit of God. God will not make you have a fight with your husband or your wife, but the devil will. So now, he says, these people who are coming are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And now he makes one of the strongest statements in all of Scripture. He says in verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so I now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what is accepted, let him be eternally condemned. And now in the book of Galatians, he's going to lay out the false gospel and the real gospel. And we need to understand very clearly the difference. And we need to understand the difference in terms of how we live out our lives. And he says in verse 10, you know, Paul had some human tendencies as well. We all do. So now he says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? He's a little defensive. And you read now through the coming verses, and he lays out his credentials to preach the true gospel of Jesus. And he's a little defensive about it. He's been attacked bitterly over this gospel. 
particularly by the Jews. But then the Jewish people have come, and they're convincing the Gentile people that they have to become like they are. And Paul is saying, no, you have to become like Jesus is. Now in chapter 2, he again begins to lay out again his credentials. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along with me. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders. They did not have a strong hierarchical government in the New Testament church. It was servant leadership. It was not positional leadership. I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some of the false brethren had infiltrated our our ranks to spy on the freedoms we have in Christ Jesus to make us slaves. You know what he's really saying? He's saying, somebody followed me into the men's restroom and watched me carefully. That's what he's saying. Spying out my freedom to see if I was circumcised. He says, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James and Peter and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. He's still being a little defensive, but he's saying, look, I went and shared the gospel I preached with the leaders in Jerusalem, those who seemed to be in leadership, and they agreed with what I was preaching. But now Peter comes to Antioch, And Peter begins to act in a way that is not faithful to the gospel of Jesus. Verse 12, before certain men came from James, you understand who James was? James was the brother of Jesus. He was reputed to be the head of the church in Jerusalem. And when Peter was there, they would have a meal in common together. And they would all sit at the table together and eat together as brothers in Christ Jesus, Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, it was not acceptable for Jews to eat with Gentiles. It was against the rules. It was against the traditions. So as James comes and he's from the power center, Peter changes his behavior. He begins to pull back from the Gentile brothers. He doesn't associate with them in the same way. He's now pretending for James that he believes as James does in the rules and traditions of the Jewish people. 
says, but when they arrived, he began to pull back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid. Peter, the man who walks on water, a people pleaser, fearful. Can I just say that if Peter has not arrived, neither have I and neither have you. There's a growing, maturing process that all of us have to go through. And in the midst of that, the Apostle Paul was not going to bend. Says the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. In other words, you have broken away from the traditions of man. And now because these supposed leaders have come and you want to please them, you're affecting all of these people and they're all following you. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. The word law is very confusing in the New Testament because it means so many different things. And you have to establish the meaning of how they're using from the context of the passage. The word law applies specifically to the Ten Commandment law, but it also equally applies to the ceremonial laws. It also applies to the health laws. It also applies to the whole body of tradition that the Jewish people have established. So when the word law is being spoken of in this case, he's speaking about the whole body of culture, the ceremonial, the moral, the health, the traditions. He's speaking about all of those laws. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The word for justified in the Greek is dikasune, and it means literally to be made righteous. So he's saying we as Jews from our experience know that a man is not made righteous by keeping the laws of the Jewish people, by keeping the traditions of the Jewish people, by even keeping the moral law. That is not how a man is made righteous. And if you remember, in the book of Romans, in the first chapter, in the introduction, it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it reveals a righteousness that does not come by law. It comes from another source. It comes directly from the heart of God. He's saying, look, Peter and all of you Jews, you know we've tried as hard as we can to keep the rules and we were never able to do it. So we're not justified by keeping the law. But by faith in Jesus Christ, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be made righteous, dikasune, by faith, In Christ, the literal meaning is to be rendered innocent. Because by observing the law, no one will be made righteous. 
if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Okay, here's where it gets sticky. I'm sure up to this point, all of you are saying, hey, I understand that. I've got that. But now let's apply it. The Jewish believers, Peter, were saying, we have not cut off sources of nurturing strength to our souls. The law and the traditions of the Jews were what made them feel like, emotionally, that they were holy. The traditions and rituals were enjoyable. Their life centered around these rituals. They were the rituals that revealed to them the love of God. In our day, we've set up Christmas and Easter as rituals of the Christian church. We have to decide how we're going to deal with those because neither Christmas nor Easter were instructed by Jesus or by the scriptures as a celebration to bring nurturance to our souls. All of us are people of of tradition. And could I use another word? Of social ritual. I would guess that if I were to sit down with you with pen and paper, and you would walk with me through several days of your life, we would uncover quickly the rituals of your life. I intentionally break some of the rituals of my life just so I don't always get stuck. For example, some of you would eat granola three times a day and be happy. You always want to eat the same food. And you're happy eating it. Don't bother me. And your wife or your whoever's doing the cooking said, could we make a little change? What? I want this every day. I can't live without it. You know, some of you, I want my Wheaties every morning. I want my bacon and eggs every morning. I want my Cheerios. They're better for you than Wheaties, I was told. I don't have my Cheerios and I'm going to die. Some of you have to have your, your nuts and your grains and your right? Your raisins. Whatever it is you put in your body, you've probably ritualized your feeding. Report came out in Natural News this last week that said the healthiest thing you could do for your body is stop eating everything you're eating every once in a while and just start eating something absolutely new that you haven't put in your mouth for a long time. But we're discomforted when we can't have You know, I like chocolate-covered, dark chocolate, because dark chocolate's good for you, right? (laughs) I like dark chocolate over uh, almonds, right? So it's good for me. If I can have four or five every day, I'm a happy camper. All of us have rituals. It's important to understand that these rituals, while saving us time and energy... That's what social rituals do. We go on automatic so we don't have to use our energy to figure out what we're going to do. I mean, when I go home tonight, if I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to eat, it's going to take me an extra 15 minutes. 
and then probably I'm going to have to go to the grocery store to get what I want. And so my sweet wife, before she died, would make out a week's menu, and we would go shopping, and then she would put in the cupboards, here's Monday's food, here's Tuesday's food, here's Wednesday's food. So that was her ritual. Saved her time. Uh, Last night before I went to bed, I went in my closet. I figured out I'm going to wear this jacket. I'm going to wear these slacks. I'm going to wear these shoes. I had everything laid out. Why? Because this morning I knew I was not going to have time or energy to even think about what I was going to wear. I was going to throw on what was there, and I was out of there because I wanted maximum time in the prayer closet and maximum time to sleep, right? Okay, these rituals, here's the danger. Everything that gives us a sense of well-being must flow to us through Jesus Christ and not out of pleasing our flesh. These people in Galatia were turning from the gospel by finding sources of energy and soul nurturance out of their own thoughts and their own way of living and out of the traditions of their people rather than allowing Jesus in the newness of life to flow in their lives. Everything of your flesh has to be severed and cut off so that you're not even doing good things that simply come out of the heart of man. Now, this is the painful part. It's spoken of in Scripture as crucifixion. What does crucifixion mean in Scripture? When somebody says, you have to be crucified to follow Jesus, what's he saying? He's saying you have to die. Well, how do you die? You die by cutting off all of those avenues of food, of nurturance, of acceptance, of emotional support, you cut off all of those except the ones that flow to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't, if you continue to gain nurturance from, can I be very specific? I'll step on some toes. If you get your nurturance out of television, if you get your nurturance out of tobacco or alcohol, if you get your nurturance and your comfort out of the refrigerator, if you get your comfort out of dark chocolate-covered almonds, if you get your comfort out of all of the things of this world, you are not hungry for Jesus. And so you won't be going to Jesus because you're already full. You're taken care of. Now, does that mean that Jesus is going to cut off everything that is enjoyable in our lives? No. He wants for us, it said in the first chapter, to have the divine influence of God on our heart, and he wants us to be prosperous and peaceful. He wants life to be enjoyable for us. So he is not going to cut off from our lives anything that he has given to us for our enjoyment, and all things have been given to us for our enjoyment. The problem is not the chocolate-covered nuts. The problem is my heart that wants to grab and growl with everything in the life to make myself feel good. 
rather than going to Jesus and allowing him to flow through my heart. So when we come to the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that everything has to be cut off from our heart except Jesus Christ, that he's the one we go after. And I want to tell you, this is the painful part. I have to give you truth in advertising. When you die to this world, you're going to be in a vacuum for a short period of time. Like when you let go of one trapeze and you haven't caught the next one yet. I refer to it sometimes as the gap dragon. There's an open space between where you let go of the lust of your flesh and Jesus Christ comes and picks you up and begins to flow in your heart. And that open space is a time of testing. And we can extend that time of testing to years. We can be very masochistic as Christians. Jonathan Edwards called it the half-converted. I talk to a lot of half-converted people. And they say to me, when I ask them in the grocery line at the grocery store, I ask this question everywhere. How are you with Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? Oh, yes. Well, do you walk clean or are there issues that you're struggling with? No, there are issues I'm struggling with. Well, why didn't you just cut them off? Huh? Just cut them off? Jesus brings righteousness by amputation. Jesus brings righteousness by amputation. He doesn't say, struggle with this sin. See if you can overcome it. He doesn't do that. He says, cut that thing off in the name of Jesus. Resist it in the name of Jesus. Refuse the devil's offering of that in your heart by just saying, Jesus, rescue me. Rescue me. Remember the opening of the book of Galatians? It says, um, grace and peace. God's favor, harmony, prosperity. That's what God wants to give us. But these things come into our life and we become our own gods. And then our prosperity is suffering. So we take jobs that Jesus didn't give us. We buy things Jesus didn't intend for us to buy. We get car fever. We get house fever. We go into debt. We think that when we use the credit card, we paid for it. Do you understand when you use a credit card, you didn't pay for anything? You just went in debt. You don't pay for it until you write that check or make that transfer of funds. So... We go outside of the will of God. We begin to take actions that are not the will of God in our lives. And then we say, where's the peace? Where's the harmony? God's against me. No, he's not. You just made decisions that totaled your life. And now you have to go and do what I had to do as I was learning this and lay all of my bills out before Jesus and say, Jesus, would you forgive me? And you know what he said to me? Don't go in debt again. But I enjoy going in debt. Because it gets me things I couldn't have if I didn't go in debt. And after all, isn't this about having the right toys? Isn't life about enjoying the things that are around us and we can't afford them, so we just go get them anyway? And we wonder, why has the peace of God left my heart? 
when the credit card company is calling and saying, why are you two months behind? And we're about to repo your car. And we wonder, what? Oh, trauma, God, help me. Save me. It's God's intention to bring peace to our hearts. It's God's intention to influence us, to cause us to walk with Jesus and not bring in outside things that we think will comfort our heart. Everything has to be cut off. And then we only go where Jesus sends us, and we only do what Jesus tells us. And we spend our time enjoying reading the word and praying and crying out to him and praising him for the peace and the prosperity he's bringing into our hearts. The whole book of Galatians is going to be about will you walk in your own flesh or will you walk in the spirit? And I would suspect that every one of us in this room, me included, are suffering because of decisions that we've made in the past. And the only way through those decisions is to be plucked out of them by Jesus Christ and have him meet the cry of our heart. Some of us today have sorrows in our hearts because of the things we've done and said. And the only answer is confession and repentance, no longer walking in that and allowing Jesus to come in and heal our hearts. Some of us have physical issues going on right now today because of what you've been eating or because of what you haven't been eating. And Jesus wants to heal our minds and our bodies and our spirits. The gospel of Jesus is a good news gospel, not a bad news gospel. And Paul is saying, what's wrong with you? Why do you insist on deciding things that hurt you? Why do you insist on trying to create for yourself something that will satisfy the cry of your heart when I'm the only one who can satisfy your heart? And he's saying, are you idiots? And I'm saying, yes, Paul. I've been an idiot lots of times. I wasn't born smart. I've made horrendous error after horrendous error, and I've paid a great price for those errors. I wish I had learned this when I was young. I would have saved myself being pierced through with many problems and many struggles to simply turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I love you. Thank you for loving me. And I'm going to trust you now with my heart and with my life. And everything that brings me comfort and joy that is not from you, I know is false comfort and false joy. Now, I know that if I went home and had a television, I don't. I threw it out a long time ago. But I know if I went home and watched, you know what I'd want to watch? I'd want to watch the Redskins play the Patriots today. I would get a perverse joy out of watching the Redskins whip the Patriots. You know what? I gave that up a long time ago. I know that any joy I would derive out of that ball game would be utterly empty and devoid of any meaning in my life. I know it would not take me toward Jesus. It would take me away from Jesus. And so it's no longer even a temptation for me. I'm not even going to try to be around people tonight who will tell me who won. So don't call me and tell me. I'll hang up on you. You hear what I'm saying to you? Something as small and as innocent, if that's small and innocent, as spending some hours in front of a television watching a foolish football game 
will not satisfy the hunger of your heart for Jesus. It will not bring prosperity to your life, and it will not bring harmony to your spirit. So I don't know what your favorite indulgences are, but you know. If I ask you to list them, you could tell me. One, two, three, four, five. Some of you might have a list of 20 or 25. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, be it entirely severed and cut off from everything of the flesh and be found hidden in Jesus. Please inventory your life and everything that is out of your flesh. Go to Jesus and cut it off. Understand that when you do, you will go through an addictive withdrawal. When I cut television off, I would go in the living room before I actually threw it out, and I would sit in front of that television and wish I could turn it on, but Jesus said no. And I actually went through depression because I could not have my fix. And then finally the Holy Spirit said to me, why are you suffering this way? Take that thing out and put it in the trash. Large screen, brand new Sony, out it went. And I was delivered, and I've never gone back, and I never will. I suspect some of you have similar addictions. Cut them off in the name of Jesus, and let the joy of Jesus begin to come into your heart. Let's pray. Lord, I know the way of life and joy, the way of prosperity, the way of harmony, I know those are found only in your love and goodness. I know those are only found in the things and the people, the relationships that you give to us. And I acknowledge, Lord, that all that I have has come from your hand, that the joy of my heart flows out of your heart. And, Lord, I praise you and I worship you and I honor you today. Lord, the cross must be lifted up over our hearts. Would you lift up your cross, Jesus? I pray in your holy name. Amen.